But the thing that I'm always proud of is that there were probably a dozen to 20 other companies all, you know, like trying to get into that market at that time. And short of beating, you know, Amazon slash Comixology, we were the last one standing. Hey, yeah. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm prepping for my guest appearance at the first annual Beer City Comic Con here in Asheville. Aside from a day of sketching for Free Comic Book Day, like five-ish years ago, this is the first time I've tabled, boy, at least in 24 years. So <laughs> it's been a long time. I had this really weird experience of going to conventions um, when I lived in New York City through the 2000s. And it'd be great to see friends and have a nice time chatting. But after a while, I would kind of lose a sense of purpose. And I kind of hit this wall a while ago going, I don't know if I want to go to these things anymore because I just felt like I had nothing to do because I was so used to sitting down, talking to guests and talking to fellow artists and, you know, kind of doing that part of the business as a, as an artist. And without that, it kind of felt very strange for me being on this sort of the other side of the aisle. And then the podcast kind of changed that because I would go to a show and I had a purpose. I had a purpose to talk to people, um, see if they were interesting to talk with, if they'd be good to have on the show. And that became a great reason to go to shows. I felt more engaged and connected. And now I'm kind of trying to see, well, how would that feel sitting at a table? Um, I, I had a sort of a come to reality moment when I, people go, well, why don't you sit at a table? It's like, well, all I have is old artwork from, you know, years and years ago. I was like, who wants to come and look at that? And the person got appointed it around and said, well, pretty much everybody who comes to a comic convention. And I was like, oh, okay, you're right. You know, I'll bring some old artwork and, you know, I spent, took me two efforts to try to track down all my work here. And, and in the end, I had have five folio books full of comic pages and covers and licensing artwork that I'm like, oh, wow, okay, I've got a lot to show here. So I was like, all right, cool. That'll, that'll be fun. And I'm uh, moderating a panel and I'm participating in another panel. So it'll be a really full weekend. This is going to be an awkward pivot maybe, but you know, one of the things that I always think about in creating stuff is that like when you hit a plateau, it's always good to change something like, you know, with figure drawing, it was try a different material and you would, your mind would work around that. And I think with create creating in the design world, you would just kind of really kind of flip all the stakes around and go, okay, well, what's, what if X, Y, and Z were different? How do you solve this problem? And you kind of come up with different solutions. And I've been playing in a, bocce league for the last wow i guess three almost three years i love playing the game i really enjoy all the aspects of it and i came up with this a new role that i, I thought oh this is this is the one this is going to be killer and and it worked out pretty well but for the last few seasons didn't really do as well as far as the team went and i don't know whether it was a team thing or a me thing but it just didn't Things just didn't come together the way I had hoped they would. You know, we, I, whatever, were plateauing at a pretty poor level. 
And it was almost comical. So I was practicing a couple of weeks ago and just said, all right, let me just rethink this. And I just came up with a different role and it worked and it worked really well. We won that week's game and we then pretty well. And then we won last week's game pretty well. We have a double header tonight, which could really be great for the team. So it was just one of these kind of things. And that made me think, and I saw Terry Dodson, the comic book artist, post something about figure drawing at a convention. And he was, but this piece, but it was great. And he did a wonderful job. And I kind of asked a couple questions and he replied saying, well, if I was to do it again, I would do it in a different way. And I'm like, aha, yeah. Like he's, it's the same thing for him. Like he felt like, uh, you know, if I had different tools, I probably would have achieved a different solution for this. And um, I think it just kind of applies to everything. And that maybe kind of awkwardly dovetails into this week's guest, which is um, Jordan Plosky. And Jordan isn't a comic book artist or writer that I typically have on here. Jordan is the co-founder of Zoop, which is the crowdfunding solution for comic books and many other things. And I met Jordan through Van Jensen at a convention and we were all hanging out talking and I was like, this guy's great to talk with. And I'm totally fascinated by all things that are in the creative world. So I was like, all right, well, let's, let's do this. And it was a, it's a, I hope you enjoyed the talk as much as I had having it with Jordan, because it's not comic book, comic book, comic book. It's really kind of about business and um, how do you view things in the world and how do you approach stuff that you're interested in achieving? Because no matter what it is, whether you want to be a, a letterer for comic books or a, uh, a publisher for comic books, I mean, you, there are, there are business things that you have to solve. So, um, I hope you dig it. It was a great talk uh, with me and I'm sure I'm going to have him back because there's probably many more things we can kind of dig into. So, uh, this is me and Jordan Plosky. Such a thing, that whole institutional knowledge thing, it is such a, it's so debilitating in so many ways, like it's an amazing way to like straighten problems out when they arrive because you've seen it and done it. It does. It doesn't help with innovation. Yes, it's just it doesn't. Completely agree. Yeah, I I have a, I have a big project right now with a massive international brand that everybody knows and loves, and they've been loving everything that we've been doing. And this is like a design thing for a big pop-up event. And <laughs> all of a sudden, like we have this meeting and they're just like, so what are the KPIs and blah, blah, blah. And they start just doing all these sort of like metric discussions yeah. and everything just grinds to a halt. And like the timer is clicking so loud. And I, I'm just like, I don't even know that it's, it's going to happen. Kills all this creativity and, and like, yeah, the momentum that you have. No, I get that. Yeah. I mean, I think innovation is just such a, like a, it's so crucial. Like experience is one thing and you can be experienced and innovative, but like, if, boy, like if you, if you are in the world of trying to make a market difference, innovation sometimes, is all. Yeah. I was going to say sometimes not knowing what those mm -hmm. limitations are is the best thing for you because you're, you're, you're not trying to think outside the box. You just naturally do. Right. 
you know, you, yeah. if, if you don't know that you're not supposed to be able to do something or that you can't do something, you're still going to try to do it and maybe crack the code where people who already have that sort of, um, that impression of like, I can't do this or I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not even going to try. So it's those people mm-hmm. who don't know that are going to be the ones to push through. It, it's, it's an interesting paradox when you think about it, because yeah. you assume like, Oh, those are the people without the experience. They shouldn't be able to give me such great notes, but maybe the problem with the people who are, who have always been giving you notes are all seeing things from the exact same way because of their training, because of their experience. But this person just didn't have any of those things holding him back from seeing things in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's admirable for sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's institutional knowledge is a blessing and a curse, I guess, in that sense. Very much so. Look, it, I, I recognize I don't know everything. And that's probably part of the reason that I do some of the things that I do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that's also part of like the excitement as well. Yeah. If you know it, if you know everything, then why don't, why don't you already have all the answers and, and why aren't you able to kind of, you know, kind of make everything happen that you want to make happen? Mm-hmm. I know that that, that that just sounded sort of like weird. I don't know if I'm articulating it properly, but the thing that I always kind of come back to you and we're getting a little off of that, that kind of topic, but I find that everybody can I curse on here or no? Hell yeah. Okay. I find that everybody's full of shit. Nobody knows what the hell they're doing. And they're all just kind of like making it up as they go along. Anyone who tells you that they know everything and that they, you know, they're God's gift to man. And that, you know, that, like don't ever go against what they say. They're all full of shit because nobody can really know most things people are experiencing or going through, you're going through for the first time, you know, now, like, let's say, you know, writing a book, for example, if you've written a book, that's amazing. First of all, to have written a book and have it out there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do things exactly the same the next time you hope, hopefully will learn from that first experience on the the business side, on the marketing side, even on the creative side, right? And say, wow, it took me so long to write that book. If I change up these few things, maybe I could shave off some of my time or, you know, I feel like I didn't exercise this muscle or whatever it is. Like no one knows everything about everything. And if they tell you that they do, they're most likely full of shit. Yeah. Don't buy whatever they're offering. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, that's, I mean, yes, there are people out there who are steps ahead of you in, in what you're doing that could mm-hmm. offer advice, but there's no one infallible person, you know, that knows everything about everything. I just, no. Yeah. It always pisses me off when, when, <laughs> when I hear someone be like, Oh, take it from me. Or I know best. It's like, well, you might know kind of, kind of well, and you might know a little bit more than some other people, but you don't know everything. Sure. And, and, and I think that's the, the, I mean, and that's probably the common sort of, conf, uh, you know, the confusion, I guess maybe that it's, it's the conflation of understanding and sort of application that people have where they're not saying, they're not qualifying, flying it by saying, take it from me because this worked for me. Like they're not contexting it in the sense of like, this worked for me, but it doesn't work for everyone. And yeah, I, I know that we're talking in generalities here, but yeah, yeah it, it, I, it's so funny, like seeing literally people's faces in my head as you're saying these things. I'm like, yep, it's that guy. I know mm-hmm. that guy. You know, these are all people who realistically, they're all faking it because they don't know the answer. Sure, sure. I mean, how many meetings have you been in or conversations where, I mean, if you could just pause it and like hit the honesty meter on people and just like with no repercussion, be like, 
do you do you really know what the next steps are and people go like i know i don't i'm just gonna kind of keep saying stuff until somebody like bails me out or like something like happens like you always hear about like in these movie studios right you have these layers and layers of people that are quote unquote executives at a movie studio and in order for them to keep their job they essentially have to give some sort of feedback whether that feedback is completely irrelevant or makes things worse instead of better they just feel like there's oh well i gotta make it look like i'm doing something i gotta make Mm -hmm. it look like i'm participating here here's here's my note you know i guess that just speaks to another i don't want to say reason but like there, there's a self-interest in in telling you something whether it's correct or not <laughs> like I, we're, we're really going down a rabbit hole here by the way this is this is not what i thought this conversation was going to be but it's interesting because it's it's true yeah well i mean like so like for you can you think of like events in your like timeline that you've had engaged with that. Cause I remember clearly like, I don't know, 15 years ago, like having that awareness of going like, Oh, these people are justifying their salary. Like this is the only reason someone's weighing in right now is that they need to make sure that they're in the email chain and somebody can look back and say, they said something. That's it. You know, uh, so I've never been, you know, like in, involved in, in the studio side of things, if you mean something like that specifically, but I, I do have friends. I mean, I live in LA, so I have friends who are showrunners. I have friends who are screenwriters and, and everything like that. So I've definitely heard those stories. You know, I, I guess that they're not my firsthand accounts, but they, I, I get them firsthand from, from my friends. Um, so I know for a fact that that's, you know, something that happens multiple times, um, throughout the process of trying to get like a TV show or a movie taken care of. The uh, <laughs> so I know you know we're, we're going to talk about Zoop, but before yeah. but before Zoop, I had another startup called Comic Blitz, and Comic Blitz was essentially like Comicsology Unlimited, um, you know, so sub- subscription based model for digital comics, and we wound up selling Comic Blitz in 2018 to a video streaming company. And I went to work for that company and, and, you know, now all of a sudden I go from like kind of running my own business and I'm reporting to someone else and that someone else, it, it, he, he was such a, he was such a trip um, because he was what everybody referred to as an idea guy. Like, how did he, how did he work his way up the ladder? How did he get into this position that he's in? Like, oh, he's an idea guy. He just knows, you know, like what needs to happen. But idea guys typically aren't like execution guys. No, you know, so there's, there's kind of like seeing the vision, but then having no input into how to like execute that vision and how to get from point A to point B. And it kind of becomes everybody else's problem where it's like, Hey, this is what the boss wants to do. We don't know why we have no instructions or notes on how to get there, but this is what we all now have to work on, <laughs> which is like, which is a, which is a weird thing. Um, because this is someone who, you know, uh, had gotten to a certain position and just dictated how things are supposed to go, whether there's actual like empirical evidence or like reasons to do it other than this is what the boss wants. So this is what we're going to do. Sure. And the crazy thing is that's like how so much of corporate America works that way. Oh Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like whoever's willing to kind of just step forward and say, Hey, we should do this. 
like everyone not, like i mean th- we see it socially like this it's a social device like everyone goes oh okay well that person seems like they, they we'll follow them they're leading we're gonna go follow them and it's kind of a common behavior i don't know if it's necessarily that it's more so that like oh if i want to keep my job i'm just gonna shut up and do what i have to do you know to keep this job and you know, all of a sudden just like start being miserable because you're like, I don't necessarily know if I trust or respect this person, but they're essentially in control of my income. So I better do what they say. And that's, again, that's like just so much of, of the system, you know, they want you to, they want you to care as much as, as, as they do, but you have no ownership in their business. No, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I think for the wrong reasons I was treat, I treated one of my positions in, in a, in a big corporation as if I was running my own business. So I was really concerned about like saving money mm-hmm. and I wasn't thinking in the terms of like budget where if finance said your budget for the year is X amount of hundred thousands of dollars, you got to spend all that money or you don't get that much money next year Sure, because you were so good. We're going to give you less and you'll, and you'll, and you'll hopefully do more with less next year. Right. And boy, did I learn a, a <laughs> I learned a painful lesson. It's a weird catch 22, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're thinking to yourself, well, if I budgeted my my house, you know, and my family this way, then we'll have extra money for other things and next times and all that. But that's not how it works in corporate America. If, no. <laughs> if you budget it the way that you would budget your house and your personal income, then you're winding, you know, like you said, you just wind up kind of like screwing yourself for next year. Yeah. And the weird thing is, is like you can get all the accolades sort of in your department and you can get a great review for it. Like, hey, great job. That was amazing. You'd, you say it does all this money. But the finance department, they're not involved in that. They don't care. They just look at the bottom lines and they go, all right, well, cool. You did a great job not spending money. So here's less money. Happy days. Look, I mean, for all of these reasons, this is why I've, I've essentially just tried to be an entrepreneur my whole life and not have to deal with any of that, you know, being at the sort of top of the food chain, hopefully I've learned enough to know that I don't know everything and Mm -hmm. I'm, and I'm humble enough and I don't let my ego get in the way of thinking that I have to say something or that I have to know answers or give answers, whether they're true, false or otherwise, you know, that, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to, I want to have an ecosystem within my own business where we are sort of outside of that typical corporate structure where it's completely inefficient and, you know, people clock in, clock out and that's it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we, yeah. Our culture is a whole other, like I, well, I, it's, yeah. it's amazing how this conversation is just kind of like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and it's, you know, we, we could, we could probably have a whole, whole conversation just about, you know, sort of culture within a business because and how valuable that is and how, you know, powerful it is and how destructive it can be. So um, maybe we'll do that some other. other yeah, yeah that, that'll be another one. Yeah. So you had comic blitz, like what, like, why did you, <laughs> why did you throw sanity, you know, into the dumpster and wait for the trash man to pick it up and then decide to get into comics? Like what was, oh. like, you know, <laughs> Oh, all right. Sure. So origin story a little bit. Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's weird because like, you know, 9-11 just passed, but like the, mm. I, I kind of always see the trajectory of my life having changed with 9-11 um, because I was a college student in New York City. So I was, you know, I have a firsthand accounting yeah. of not, of 9-11. Like I I witnessed it firsthand. I saw, you know, I saw the buildings fall from 14th Street 
you know, facing south, like I was yeah. there. But the reason that I bring that up is because I had been interning for like a year and a half at MTV and VH1 for the people listening to this. If you remember those <laughs> those channels, <laughs> I don't know who watches that anymore. But, um, you know, this is 2000, 2001. Um, this is like pre sort of everything is on YouTube. Everything's on the Internet. Um, but what happened after 9-11 was so many companies were laying off people, especially entertainment like that. So getting a job just became it, it, almost impossible. Um, I wound up moving back to Long Island, working at a nightclub, uh, doing like stagehand stuff and stage tech stuff and, you know, helping out with shows because my background was music. I, I'd always uh, been a professional, dr I, well, not a professional drummer. I'd always been a drummer in bands and uh, at the same time that I moved back to Long Island, I was working at nightclubs and I was still playing music. Um, and I became the house drummer at a recording studio. This is all a long story, but um, the owner of that recording studio got a call one night when I was there saying, hey, we need a drummer uh, for this tour that's coming up. Do you have anybody? And I happened to be right there. So I kind of, you know, lightning strike, right place, right time. I got my first tour and I went up working as a touring musician for 10 years that's how i made a living like wow. i didn't yeah i didn't have to do any other any other jobs like I, I made a living i played with some high profile people but then i got married i had a child and the problem with that is in order to make money i had to leave home for months at a time so i was yeah. miss, i was missing my kid grow up and then when i was home i have a crying toddler who's waking up you know three four five six times a night the way that I would get gigs and it's very similar to being like a freelancer and anything else. I mean, I was a freelance musician was I'd have to go out and network, you know, I'd go to sunset strip every night and, and yep. whether I was going to watch a friend's band play or I was playing or just showing face, right. Because mm -hmm. the, the lesson was always, um, I want to be the last drummer that anybody sees. So when they get that call, they instantly think of me instead of the next guy. Um, and so that's how I would just keep getting work and work and work. But when you have a kid and <laughs> you have to wake up at like five or six in the morning, you can't like be out until two or three in the morning anymore. So right. yeah. I really needed to, you know, figure out if I was going to be a lifer, you know, in the touring world, or if I was young enough at that point, which I was to sort of pivot to something else. But I'm, you know, having essentially lived the dream toward the world, you know, played on some of the biggest stages imaginable you know, I still just wanted to do the things that made me happy that I was passionate about. And I kind of switched my focus um, of what my passions were from music to comics, <laughs> um, you know, and saw the funny thing is when I was like trying to like get into comics, quote unquote, I'm not a writer, I'm not an artist. So I was like, Oh, well, I would be really interested in like working on the business side of things. But the answer that I got from everybody was like, well, to, to get in, you have to intern. And at that point, I was already like 30, 31. And I'm like, I'm, right, I'm, not, right. I'm not interning. What are you talking about? And I found um, an ad. I don't even remember if it was like Craigslist or something for uh, a comic tech startup in LA. And I met with that guy. Sure enough, it was essentially uh, that model comics, you know, uh, like Netflix for comics, right? Subscription based digital comics. I was like, oh, this is brilliant. I love this. And mm -hmm we were sort of like growing this, this roster of, of content and creators and, and um, you know, the app was being built and, and everything seemed to be going really well, but it was almost the same thing of like, Oh, 
I'm kind of building this business for somebody else. Right. And, and when it got to a point of like, Hey, um, I feel like I'm adding a lot of value here. Like I, I would like a piece of ownership. And instead of having a conversation and a negotiation about it, the counter offer was no. And that kind of like put a little wedge between us. So then my wife, I, and the funny thing is like, I never thought about this and I, this might be pertinent to people who listen to this show, but my wife was just like, well, you were already doing it for him. Why don't you just do it for yourself? And the, the thought had like never occurred to me, right. which is, which is so silly. But the thing that I really like, um, that really struck me was a lot of the skills that I had as an independent contractor, a freelancer, and this goes for any freelancer, any independent contractor is I was already an entrepreneur. I didn't realize it though. I was my product. I was selling myself constantly to different clients. Um, and so a lot of those skills actually transferred over into being, you know, a quote unquote, actual entrepreneur, not to take anything away from, you know, independent contractors, freelancers, but now instead of me being the product or the service. Now I, I actually have a product or service that I'm selling, but it's all the same, uh, all the same skill sets, relationship, sure, yeah. re relationship building, networking, trading on your reputation, you know, being able to sort of handle yourself properly in multiple different contexts with different types of people. So, and, and hustling, that's really all it was, was like, yeah, you know, having the grit to, you know, go out at night every night on the Sunset Strip, for example, or to, you know, be able to travel to all the conventions and, and be able to just walk up to, you know, a, a publisher's booth and say, hey, can I talk to someone about digital content and then, you know, snowball everything from there. So, you know, when with Comic Blitz, we were able to get uh, content from IDW and Aspen and Zenoscope. Uh, it's been a little while now, but I know that we had a, a, a little bit larger roster than that. We had like 10,000 comics on board, but you know, the timing was horrible because even after, after we launched was when Comixology Unlimited came out. Okay. And so they just kind of, you know, crushed us. But the thing that I'm always proud of is that there were probably a dozen to 20 other companies all, you know, like trying to get into that market at that time and short of beating and, you know, Amazon slash Comixology, we were the last one standing and, and we actually wound up getting acquired. So always very proud of that fact. Um, it's huge. No, that I mean, that, that's yeah. a huge, that's a huge thing to kind of like pull out because I think it's an easy way for a lot of people to go like, you know, oh, you know, kind of frame it, frame it in a negative angle, you know, anything. And like, you can apply this to so many different things, you know, in, in a, you know, in a sort of a, you know, a business owner career, you can go like, Oh man, like, you know, we got beat out by the, whatever. I mean, the competition is there, but like, once again, you, I, you, you identified the competition being one of the largest companies in the world, kind of, you know, it's, they can just wait you out, you know, it, it you know, the oh, yeah. invading army, they surround your city. They're like, we got all the time in the world. Yeah, no, that but we weren't even on their radar, dude. Right. <laughs> they, right. they I, I don't even believe that they cared. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that was sort of like my first foray into building a company, you know, recruiting team members and dealing with, you know, equity and fundraising and, and, you know, it's interesting licensing content and, you know, mm -hmm. building the apps for, for the, the, the Apple store, the Google play store and, you know, all that. It was, it was a fantastic experience. Exciting. Yeah. And, and it was, it, it gave me some credibility in 
in an industry where I don't know how else I would have gotten into that industry. I, yeah. I mean, cause like, <laughs> once again, 30, 31 years old, interning at, at Marvel or DC and doing your time there, becoming an assistant editor, doing your time, doing that, like working yeah. your way up the I mean, you probably could have hopped in into the, the sales team or you could have hopped in somewhere in a, in a different, you know, different sure. yeah. production side role, but nonetheless, it takes years and years and years to kind of get your hands in there. Yeah. And the funny, th- I, I, I think this all ties back to like how this conversation started is I, I don't want to work for anybody else. Right. I don't, I don't want to feign interest or, you know, feign caring as much about the company as the person whose company it actually is. I've you're, worked, such a, you're such yeah. a drummer. Well, that's, that's the thing, man. Like I've had the good fortune of sort of like fulfilling dreams, living out my dreams mm-hmm. and kind of being able to craft my life a, a certain way. And I want to continue being able to do that. Like I, it, it breaks my heart. Like I see, you know, mass layoffs. I see, you know, friends of mine who, who, you know, quit one job or get fired from one job and now have to go find another job. And I just, I never want to have to deal with that stress. That's like, yeah. it's, it's such a big, um, driver for me in terms of like, you know, just having my own thing where, yeah, it's stressful, but you trade one stress for a different kind of stress. But I feel like this stress of owning my own business versus the stress of working for someone else and always fearing, you know, for my job or whatever, you know, I prefer this stress to that. Sure. You know, no, it's, yeah, I mean, it's weird. Like, I mean, the quickest way to fame to wealth is, you know, starting a business, building a business, selling a business, but it, it, but it's, but it's no guarantee. No, and, at all. And, right. And, but the thing is, is like, man, when you are, when you have your hand on the tiller, you know, it is so, it, it, it affords you the ability to see things and do things that you don't get the opportunities for when you're in, you know, when you are siloed in a section of a business. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. And, and, Look, I'm sure that there are exceptions to the rule out there. There are some great companies to work for where everybody feels a part of the team and whatnot, you know, but this is that and that's again, I, like, you know, I listen to other entrepreneurs and, and these these like business coaches and stuff like that. And yeah, culture, like going back to that, that th- those are all the things like I, I've learned a lot in my time of work. I've worked for other people. It's not like I've had this straight line of like, oh, you know, so like I, I've had my time doing, you know other jobs for other people and and they're all learning experiences of like what to do what not to do yeah so yeah, yeah. do you do you have a i mean do you have like an earlier memory of something you could say is the the prototype of this sort of behavior in you in you like as a, as a kid i mean were, were you like i'm gonna go do this you know and like do something the i think that's a really good question. And the, and the first thing that sort of comes to mind is like when I, like from the time I was 14 years old, I was just a little punk rocker and okay. every, everything about punk rock was like, do it yourself. You know, yeah, you don't did need, you, did you skateboard? Uh, <laughs> this is going to be an embarrassing admission, but I was more like a rollerblader. Okay. But, no, but, but, I, listen, I love my rollerblades. Yeah. But like jump, you know, doing jumps and tricks and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You know, there was, there was a group of us like there, you know, half skateboarders, half rollerbladers and going off ramps and, you know, curbs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But there was something about, um, 
you know, all my favorite bands were, were punk bands that were not on major labels. And they always espouse, you know, do it yourself. You don't need to be a part of the system. Just have passion in what you do and you'll be fine, essentially. Yeah. You know, like you don't need a mansion. You don't need all this money. Like mm-hmm. all, all you kind of need is like music and your friends and, and it, like you'll be fine. And I think that that kind of permeated into my mindset because I never... I never wanted for anything. Like I always had everything I needed. I was always very minimalist. Like I, I, you know, I don't buy a lot of material things. And I think that that has to do with that sort of mindset um, Mm -hmm. from there. But at the same time, it's also like, you know, just taking control of your own destiny. Right. Yeah. And I would rather fail doing something that I want to be doing than succeed doing something that, I, I don't want to be doing like, I, I totally yeah. get that. I mean, I, and it's funny. I wish, I wish. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, my, my sort of skateboard background was, you know, in that same vein was just beaten out of me early on. And like uh, in, in, in junior high, like I wore vans and I got, I got beat up for wearing vans. Cause it was, I grew up in a very sort of like, you know, conservative kind of like place. And it was like, wow, like, I can't believe like I'm getting like, wailed on because i'm wearing sneakers and and then i remember like and i love i love comic books so much i just wanted to make comic books like i just that's all i wanted to do was make comics so i go off to i went to school in new york city as well and you know all that kind of stuff and um and i was making comics but like i didn't have the sort of the punk rock band equivalent of a comic book to look at like all my stuff that i looked at those were like, you know, it was Daredevil or the X-Men or, you know, whatever the big, the thing that I loved. And by the time I found my, you know, I mean, even if when I found American flag, which is one of my favorite books as a kid, I, I don't think I dis- differentiated it as being an independent book versus a mainstream because Chaikin was an, it was a mainstream guy sure. doing an independent book at such a high level. So same thing with Nexus. Nexus didn't look like an independent book. Yeah, you know, understood there. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't necessarily know, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, like, so, like I said, when I was fourteen, and all these punk bands like hit the mark, like everybody knew about what was right. going on there, you know. Versus like in '91, when like everybody knew about comics, but that was because of like the death of Superman, or or you know, Bane breaking Batman's back, or like X Men One. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. like, but all that stuff was was mainstream and unless you sort of like as indie as i got i feel at that time was like valiant and image right right you know i didn't i didn't know anything about even american flag at at, at that point i didn't know anything about i think i had some nexus stuff um Uh but like everybody knew everybody in the world or i should say everybody in the country knew about punk rock because of like green day and offspring and and that but and everybody knew about comics but mm-hmm. not everybody knew about the independent side of comics yeah. at that point. Well, but right, because you could go to the record store, and you would see store. you would see like Epitaph Records or Fat yes. Records or like totally. Lookout Records, yep. and you would be like, "What is this? Why doesn't it say Warner Brothers or Columbia?" You know, right? And so I think wearing the you know London Calling T shirt, like yeah, because it's such an iconic image and one of the greatest albums like you know but nobody's wearing the mage t-shirt right yeah you know 
I remember well, it might have been like Chasing Amy or something like that, or right. um, or even Mallrats, yeah. where it was like, oh, Kevin Smith had had like Mike Allred, Madman, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, what is this? You know, it it, it was yeah. things it was things like that that would sort of you know turn your head, or like you had to be like reading Wizard magazine to find out about like other things aside from you know, Marvel and DC, really, like I said, as indie as I got was really valiant or image at that point, Yeah, you know? Um, And they do like, it's funny because like, you know, in the distinction, like the thing that keeps popping in my head is like, you know, an indie comic doesn't start off with one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yeah. But your, your punk band, your punk music, that's got to get a cassette. Well, it's going to start off, start off like that. So, you know, it's not you too this polished yeah, yeah like major studio thing yeah. i i don't know you know there's one other thing like so growing up i, I grew up on long island and mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the people that i that i grew up with in in middle school high school that like went on to college wound up moving back to new york or long island all working in finance and if you were to ask them like when they were in middle school or high school what do you want to do when you grow up i'm sure none of them were like i want to be some sort of broker or whatever like you kind of <laughs> fall you kind of fall into that me, I've always known what I'm passionate about. And not everybody has that sort of passion to pursue. And some people, even if they do have that passion, just don't have that drive or the know-how to pursue it. Or 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 there's just there there's a fear that leads them to not pursue it and just take the safe, like, oh, I'll go into finance and make a lot of money over here you know, but not like try to pursue a job in the NBA. And I don't even mean like as a player, but like, you know, like working for the Knicks or working for the Nets or something like that, because I love, I love basketball so much, or, you know, I love movies. So I'm going to try to, you know, work at the Tribeca film festival or whatever it is. Like, I think some people just go the safe route or go the route that they feel that they're supposed to go as opposed to like what, what really truly speaks to them. Um, And some people just don't have something that, truly speaks to them you know right yeah yeah I, and, it, oof, yeah I, I just always did and and i couldn't not, i couldn't not pursue it if that makes sense no no i get that and i think and i think you know going back to what you were saying with the diy factor like that musical culture encouraged just straight up encouraged make it do it try yeah. it like there's no there's so little sort of like I know there, there's no downside to it. Like you could, you, like you, no one's going to go like, man, you only know two chords. Like yeah. who's going to care? Like yeah. it, it's yeah. fine. It's fine. Look, my dream when I was like, I didn't want to go to college. My parents forced me to go to college. I give them all the credit in the world for making that decision for me. I, you know, but at the time <laughs> I just, I, I would have been over the moon living out of a, a van. Yeah. You know, with with my band and all of our gear in the van, like not even a trailer, just like everything. (laughs) Like I would have been ecstatic if that was my life. So, yeah, it's, you know. (sighs) Goals change, you know, goals grow and everything like that. But like if you know what it is that you want to do, it's really hard, at least for me to not. I think Kevin Smith said it. He's like. The fact that you're born at all, like that you beat out billions of other sperm, you know, to, <laughs> to make it to the point of like being alive in the first place, and then we're, we're, we're only alive for like a certain amount of time. Like, hmm. how could you not at least give 
give it a shot. Like those things that you want to do, like what's the worst that's going to happen. Yeah. It kind of puts things into perspective a little bit, man. Like, yeah, totally. And and you're born a winner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I love that. Born a winner. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, okay. Just quickly, um, before we before we kind of move a little further <laughs> past past the, the comic blitz, but like, I mean, you know, you and everyone else got stomped by comicsology, like, but like, I love I love your hot take on what do you think happened there? Like, what happened? Like, why did that all just went? Oh, oh, well. Look, I'm not at Amazon. I don't I don't know how they work and how they operate, but from everything that I've heard, I mean, it's you know, the reason that they bought Comixology in the first place was was not really about the comics and the technology, but more about the customer data, right? If gotcha. if they had millions of people who had signed up and they, you know, Amazon's looking in every direction for new customers, you know, to acquire, sometimes the easiest way to acquire the, those customers is to just acquire a company, right? So, mm-hmm. if you have let's say 2 million people. And I don't know what those numbers are. Like, you know, let's say you have 2 million people in your database, you know, that makes you a pretty valuable company. These are people who are, you know, who have discretionary income, who are spending money on, on, you know, comics, like Amazon started as a bookseller. So I think that there's, you know, going to be a correlation to comics as well. But these are people who are into sci-fi fantasy who probably are also going to be interested in the Amazon streaming service and, and renting movies and buying movies and, and, you know, needing, uh, there's a huge crossover. The Venn diagram probably of people who, who read comics and play video games is probably like an identical circle for the most part. I'm not a video gamer, so I, but I feel like an, I feel like an anomaly. I feel like most people who are comic fans also play video games. So I think Amazon Amazon strategy was essentially how do we monetize these customers as much as we can? You know, in terms of the technology, I think that there were a lot of missteps in um, implementing or integrating, excuse me, the technology into Amazon proper, right? I mean, yeah. trying to make it a part of Kindle and, and not, it, it sounded like not only not keeping customers and fans up to speed, but like the internal teams had no idea what was going on too. Like all of a sudden you're going to, you're just going to say like, here's the new update. And like, everyone's like, nothing works. You you know, how, how, how are you Amazon? How are you like one of the largest companies in the world? Take a look at this and be like, yep, that's good. Like when a hundred percent of the feedback almost unanimous. I can't say a hundred percent, but like almost unanimous was like, this sucks. You've made everything worse. I can't read my comics. I can't find my comics. I can't get to my library. Where's all my old purchases? Like it just seemed like they screwed up so much. Um, and at that point, I don't even know, you know, if the original comicsology team, like wh- what their level of involvement was, or if they were getting phased out. And now all of a sudden you don't have people who are passionate about it. You don't have that driving force to kind of, you know, push things forward in, in, in a customer friendly direction or even in a publisher friendly direction, like Amazon, yeah. not, not only alienated, I think comics readers, but comic publishers, because look, I know that digital comics never really got above like that 10 to 15% of, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a publisher's revenue. But like when you start losing 10 to 15% of your revenue, that's also kind of a big deal. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. It may, it's, it's not the huge bump you want, but it certainly is a noticeable dip. Absolutely. And yeah, yeah. 
if if you're you know let's say image comics or i don't even know if valiant's doing anything anymore but if you're image comics or if you're dark horse or dynamite or boom and you lose 10 to 15 percent of your revenue like that's tremendously noticeable and now all of a sudden how are you going to feel about working with amazon who with no notice with no communication essentially like cut out you know that that revenue stream for you I, i look i don't know anybody who still uses it I haven't heard anybody like I'm not saying that there aren't users on on the platform. I'm sure that there are, but yeah, it, it's not what it what it once was by any no. means. And, I mean, and this is the honestly, this is the most conversation, you know, uh, the mention of the <laughs> word that I've heard in a long time. So, yeah, um, it, it's interesting, you know, and I, you know, when you're talking about it, it made me think, you know, when I worked at L'Oreal, you know, one of the major competitors was Procter and Gamble. And Procter and Gamble was a very noted company for their um, their management. Like they were notable managers of great at figuring out, you know, and having these this sort of this pedigree. And my team ended up getting a manager from P and G. We were like, oh, we're real super excited. Like we're going to get like a P and G guy. Like take that, take that other guy teams. And um, he was the worst, worst. Oh no, worst that we that it, I mean like day and night compared to the pre you know his predecessor and what we realized and what l'oreal realized was that you know oh they just handed off their their you know their their leftovers to us the guy was so bad there they just isolated him and then when the time for the non-compete had you know was was beyond they were like you can go look for a job now and so because he hit because basically they kept him on ice for at least six months. And then he, and L'Oreal did the exact same thing to him with us. So he just sat in a small, like a subsequently smaller office every few months, they put him in a smaller office and he would just come to work, sit down, surf the internet all day long, never went to meetings, didn't have to do any, had nothing to do with anything. And then found another job. And what I realized was they weren't, just like PNG and just like, you know, they weren't going to fire him because <laughs> firing him would be the mission of failure. So to keep him and then let him go on to another thing shows that like, at least that they didn't make a bad choice. And then they push the problem onto someone else. And I think in a company like the size of Amazon, you may end up having this kind of thing like, well, we're going to move you over to this group, but we're going to move you over to this group to get experience, to move your way up. Sure. And sometimes lemons just slide into the, into the basket. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't, I can't claim to know the inner workings of how or what went down, but you know, this just from really speculative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and from, but just from the customer side of things and seeing like how they, essentially exploded the user experience, you know, and then hearing from publishers about like, yeah, this isn't working anymore and we're getting no communication anymore. And, and, you know, the money's not what it used to be that it seems just like a failure in so many different categories Yeah, that, yeah. you know, I, I, an alleged failure. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to, sure. they could come but, back. Yeah. Hey, you never know. But, but like, I think it's still a thing, you know, I think it, I think it's part of the Kindle unlimited, but like, there hasn't been any marketing or messaging to the community to let people know like what's still there. I don't know if publishers are still, you know, providing content or not. I know that there's some new players in the space, which is interesting. You know, it's all a matter of timing. 
Mm-hmm. So maybe my timing with Comic Blitz, you know, we were active from like 2014 to 2018. Maybe the, the timing was just wrong. Maybe now is the mm-hmm. time for a new entrance into the space. So I, you know, the thing is, I think there's always going to be a market, you know, it, now it may not be the gigantic, you know, tidal wave that everybody dreams of when they make a, when they make a thing, but you know, and maybe you're right. Maybe now's the time. Maybe people are going to be like, Hey, cool. Like my iPhone plus 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 is big enough to read a comic on now. Yeah. I don't know. I, it, the only thing that I had an iPad for was to read comics. Right. And when my iPad, essentially, I could no longer update it because it was, you know, three years old or four years old or something like that. Instead of spending like another 400 bucks on an iPad, I spent like, I think, 50 bucks or 75 bucks on an Amazon Fire tablet. Yeah. And it does everything I needed to do. You know, I, I read Hoopla. I don't know if you read Hoopla. No, no, I don't. Uh, Hoopla is... I'm writing it, it down. Yeah. H-O-O-P-L-A. I forget if there's an H at the end or not, but it's essentially uh, like a digital library. It's associated if you have a library card. So if you're in North Carolina, for example, if the North Carolina uh, library, you know, network uh, is connected with Hoopla, then you take your library card. And now all of a sudden you have a library in your on your phone, on your on your tablet. So they have they have tons of digital comics they have audiobooks they have movies they have music it, it's 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 just like walking Amazing. into a library except it's in your device but nice. the, for the for the purposes of this conversation the graphic novels digital comics they have they have current releases you know d- depending on the publisher and what they put out but i just reread grant morrison's animal man run nice you know yeah. they have they have every i mean all the sort of um like evergreens are on there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, so ho- Hoopla. Yeah. Right. And I, th- I think, an- I think another one is called overdrive. I think they're, they're same model. Um, right. I'm just, I just heard about Hoopla first. So that's the app I have, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the, that's the nature of everything. Isn't it? Like, yeah. Like, oh, this is the first thing. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm a, this person. Yeah. Um, okay. So, all right. We've, we've detoured a bit, but anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so the blitz is over. Blitz is over. <laughs> so what, so what happens? Uh, well, so when comic blitz got acquired, I went to work for the company that acquired yeah. us and I was not happy there. That's I guess, uh, you know, it kind of <laughs> harkens, harkens back to earlier in the conversation about, you know, um, but was not a great environment. I, I just, I really, I, I thought I was going to have, uh, the resources to, you know, really like push things forward, right? Like here's this company who, who bought us and, and yeah. they must have a plan, <laughs> right, sure. you know, just for those who were just listening to this, it, all, all that was, was a shrug of the shoulders. There was no, yeah. um, but there, there was no plan. And every time I came to the table with ideas on how to expand, I was just met with people who um, were getting paid the same, whether they worked on my ideas or not. Yeah. So they had no incentive to like actually add to their workload. I don't even think the infrastructure was there to, to like properly do things. And it was just a frustrating experience. Um, I was, I was kind of venting to a friend of mine and he was like, well, actually uh, you might want to talk to my wife. I think that they may be looking for someone. So sure enough, I went up 
uh, going to work for another company. And this is now before the pandemic hits, but when the pandemic hits, we're all quarantined. We're all isolated. Um, I kept my job, but things were very, very slow and scary and nobody knew what was going to happen. And in order for me to stay sane, I needed something positive to focus on. And so I'd start having conversations with, you know, people from, from my comic blitz days, right? Like just mm-hmm. business people seeing who's doing what, you know, what people are looking at, what are, what people are seeing. Um, and this was at a time, like if you remember in the pandemic, um, Diamond at that point still had a monopoly. Right, yeah. <laughs> and Diamond had to shut down. State regulations or, you know, federal regulations, whatever it was, they had to shut down. Retail shops all had to shut down. At the same time, I think it was AT&T just purchased Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, DC Comics had slashed their publishing output by 25%. So you start seeing all these different things adding up to less and less opportunities for creators, seeing like the cracks in the way that like things are currently done. Now, on the flip side, what the pandemic did was also grow e-commerce in you know what what should have been growth over 10 years was growth in like five months so e-commerce exploded right i mean whatever the percentages were i don't even remember whatever the dollar amounts but i mean tens of billions of dollars that just wasn't happening you know at that up until that point and then also seeing um crowdfunding exploding as well specifically in the comic space I think that had a lot to do with the fact that like, well, people are home. They needed something positive to focus on. You know, now's that time I can do that creative project I've been pushing off. Like what else am I kind of doing now that I'm isolated? So I think that that started a lot of, um, a lot more people getting into that space. So one of the conversations I had was with my, who turned out to be my co-founder. His name is Eric Moss. Um, he, was at IDW. And when I had comic blitz, uh, he was my point of contact over there. So I would license content. I would license IDW content from him. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so we reconnected and he, he had run some, some crowdfunding campaigns for IDW. Um, and even after, I don't remember the timing. He also was the campaign manager for boom studios for berserker, the Keanu Reeves one. Mm -hmm. So up, up until, Recently, up until this good omens, um, the Neil Gaiman, uh, Terry Pratchett uh, Kickstarter campaign, Berserker was the number one comics, yeah, comic uh, crowdfunding campaign of all time. So the fact that he worked on that and when we taking a step back, when we were connecting and and we got on a call, he was talking about, well, I might just kind of consult for some people on their Kickstarters and help them, you know, do do project management, do campaign management for them on those. And with my background of, you know, just like building a tech company, essentially, I was like, you know what? What if we just did it ourselves instead of tacking on something to Kickstarter uh, the way like Backerkit and at the time Crowdox had? Sure, it was right. like, well, well, why why be beholden to someone else? Like we're listing out all these problems that we're seeing. Don't get me wrong. I, I love crowdfunding, right? I, yeah, I think yeah, totally. I, I think it's it's a great tool, but but. You know, the technology from our competitors, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, is from like 2009. They haven't really updated, you know, since then. No, this is a huge, huge issue for so many, so many makers. Yeah. I mean, so seeing, 
some of those problems was really like what led us to just doing it ourselves because we're like, mm-hmm. oh, well, we can make the user experience so much better. We can make uh, the creator experience so much better. And that's essentially what we've done. Um, simple changes that make that streamline and make the entire process so much more efficient. But our, our big differentiator and how we started out was we are a full service crowd crowdfunding platform. That means that we're going to handle the printing. We're going to handle fulfillment. We could be your campaign manager. We can handle marketing. So those are sort of all the tools that you need in order to have a successful crowdfunding campaign. But if you're a writer, if you're an artist, you don't want to have to do all of those things on your own. So you have two options. A, you you just have to learn how to do all of those things. (laughs) Or B, you have to hire people to do those things for you. But all of our fees are on the back end of a successful campaign, right? right? So if, you, if your campaign is not successful, you don't owe us any money. But if you were to hire someone to do marketing and PR for you, you got to pay them. And because you're paying them now, you're going to like sweat and you're going to have to oversee them anyway. You're going to have to be like, mm-hmm. well, what are you doing? What happened today? Why aren't, you know, because I spent two dollars $2,000, $5,000, whatever that person's going to charge you, you know, with us, we're equally invested in your campaign because the more money you make, the more money we make. Yep. So that model definitely resonated with a lot of people um, because of my time working, you know, with Comic Blitz and, and Eric's time at IDW. We had some connections and we had some creators that were our first batch of creators. And we've been growing, you know, ever since uh, from there. But then in at the end, we, so we launched in June of 2021. At the end of 2021, Kickstarter made an announcement that, that they were moving to blockchain. And the uh, and the uproar, the uproar from the community was huge um, because this is like peak NFTs and and crypto. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so the fact that they were making this announcement about moving to blockchain without actually providing any information of like how this makes anything better for literally anybody. I think that there was a huge backlash. And while we weren't necessarily 100 percent prepared for something like that, we came out, we were like, well, we're an option. You know, we, right. we weren't necessarily thinking about doing that at that point, but it kind of forced our hand to just say like, all right, we have our full service thing over here. But if you just want to come to Zoop and run your campaign, we could do that too without providing those services. So now we sort of have the two different business models and we had a huge influx. I, I always say that that was, that was the best, you know, PR announcement that we never did. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Because we totally. got... Yeah, we got so many inbound inquiries at that time. And of course, you know, the outrage dies down. But the cool thing is, we've had people who have, you know, came to us because of that. And now they're with us, like they're, they're going to do their next ones. We've already had people come back and do some more. So it's been really exciting to see it like, oh, people like what we're doing. And we have case studies now from people who have run campaigns on Kickstarter. And from people who have run, I should say the same creators who have run campaigns on Zoop. And you can compare and contrast like how how they've done, you know, monetarily backer wise. And we're we're comparable. And in many cases, we've done better than Kickstarter. Yeah. You know, um, I like to say that we lower the barrier to entry, you know, for creators, mm-hmm. because I mean, the, the impetus behind it was really going after those creators who are working for Marvel and DC. Right. But mm-hmm. they're they're freelance. They don't have time to take off like a month or two to run their own campaign. But yeah, they have content, they have art books, they have indie, you know, creator own stuff that maybe they want to put out that's just sitting there, but 
they, you know, can't do it themselves or, you know, the thought of having to package up like 500 packages and ship them out is like way too daunting and where a lot of crowdfunding campaigns ultimately fail, you know, is like, yeah. So the fact that we handle that for them is it just makes it so much easier for them to be like, yeah, cool. I'll do it. You guys are the built in team handling all the stuff that I don't want to handle. Sure. Let's, let's go, you know, no, and, no, and it's, yeah. dude, it's, it's the, you know, people like, you know, well, why don't you just self publish your novels? I'm like, because I don't want to do the work. Like it's a, it's a lot novels hard enough to do. Like, I don't want to have to be the person contacting and making all these things. I don't want to do it. I yeah. Don't do you have it. to, you have to find a printer. You have to deal mm-hmm. with the printer now on, you know, on, on terms, on timelines, on, on formatting, on, on paper stock, on covers, like, you know, it, it's a lot of stuff. And then once you get the book, you know, how are, how are you distributing it? How are you getting right. it into people's hands? You know, it's, it's so, such a challenge. Such yeah, a challenge. It really, really is. And I think that we are, we've, I feel like we've solved a lot of problems and we're filling a lot of gaps in the world of crowdfunding just by making those services readily available. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something that we can do for everybody. You know, that like, that there's certainly like, a point where it financially makes sense for someone to, you know, give us a larger percentage and for us to, you know, dedicate our time to a certain campaign, you know, so there has to be certain, like a certain monetary threshold where it makes sense for all parties. But realistically, even for the, you know, people coming to our site, they have access to humans. You know, we, we could provide advice. We could, you know, just provide best practices, which I don't think you, Kickstarter has anything like that, you know, I, I think I did. I, I attended a, they had, they had like an online sort of thing with someone who was in charge of that, you know, division books, right, right. Books and comics mm-hmm. and she was great and she answered questions, but, but she's not, she's not, she's not a publisher person. Like she doesn't have any background in publishing comic books. She just, you know, her, her job was, she got a job and she worked at Kickstarter and that's where she ended up. And, and she was great, but I don't think they had like specific insight. It's like Netflix doesn't understand the movie business. Netflix understands a Netflix business. Right. And that's why they don't share any of their information with anyone else because it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't line up with what Hollywood, you know, has to take care of. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, it's, there's definitely like the production side of things and the fulfillment side of things, but there's also the insights into campaigns and setting Mm -hmm. yourself up for success. I think the one thing that like some people may or may not realize depending on, on their perspective is that like, just because you put something up on a crowdfunding site doesn't mean that you're going to get funded. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a misconception there. It's like, Oh, I'll just crowdfund it and make my money. It's like, well, no, man, if, if you don't, if you don't tell anybody about this project and you're looking to raise like $10,000, but nobody knows who you are, you have no track record. Like, you know, Kickstarter stats are something like 40% success rate across the board. Right now, you know, comics has a higher percentage uh, success rate in, in crowdfunding uh, on Kickstarter, but we're still, we're anywhere between like 87 and 90% success rate. Mm -hmm. And that that's really just because we have a human touch. Like we could let you know, Hey, you're not ready yet. Like you have zero signups. Like you should not be pulling the trigger, you know, like launching this campaign, but there's, they don't have that sort of sounding board over at Kickstarter. So, you know, and and not even understand like, 
oh, what's an email list and why do I need an email list, right? Oh, well, that's your that's your number that's one your tool. Number one thing. It's a number one thing, and I don't care what you do. If you are if you are your own entrepreneur, whatever it is, yeah, it's your email list. Nothing, nothing else comes close. And just to kind of go back to what we were saying earlier in this conversation, if you are a freelancer, if you're an independent contractor, you are an entrepreneur. You need yes. that email list. You need yes. to, you need a lot of the legwork for, you know, a successful crowdfunding campaign happens before you even launch. Those are the things that I think mm -hmm. really help us get those creators, you know, over the finish line, I think is just like being able to communicate with them and explain to them like where their weak points potentially are, or at least helping them identify like, oh man, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. It, you know, Alex, it's the thing of like, you've never done something before. You don't know what you don't know. Right. So take it from someone who now, like realistically, you know, my, my partner, Eric, he has been hands-on with every single campaign that we've done since we've launched. So that being said, I don't know if there is anybody that has actually been a part of or run more crowdfunding campaigns than him yeah. on this planet, on this planet right. at this point, like, you know, so we know what we're talking about now. Sure. We, we, we've done, you know, the Beatles 10,000 hours or like not the Beatles, yeah. so who, whatever the guy's name with the 10,000 hours. I mean, yeah. We, we've put in the time, the work, we see what works, we see what doesn't, we try to impart that knowledge on people so that they can be set up for success as well. And again, I just don't think that, you know, you find that at Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Yeah. For everybody out there, the keyboard commandos, it's uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. 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 It, um, even though Gladwell attributes it to a different person, he heard someone say something similar and then he rephrased it. But, um, he's definitely the, the one, he's definitely the one famous for he that. Gets, 10 he gets the credit. credit he does. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you guys came in the radar for me, um, uh, because you took on the production and distribution for the, um, the Winterman project. Sure. Yeah. And like, that was like. You know, and now like hearing like with your partner, I'm like, oh, I now I now I know how it all came. Oh, together. you connected like, the dots. <laughs> I'm like, OK, I can see how everything kind of pull, pulled together and, you know, and everybody, you know, involved with that. Um, yes. Yeah, no, it, look, it's no mystery. Like I said, Eric worked at IDW. Yeah. Um, Scott Dunbeer also works at IDW, mm -hmm. who puts together the artist edition books when um, John Paul Leon passed away. Um you know, two of his best friends who, you know, they, they would table at conventions together. They were part of a yeah. studio together. So it's Tommy Lee Edwards, Bernard Chang um, had gotten together. And, and, you know, the funny thing, I don't I don't know how the two of them got together with Scott, but this, the three of them all, you know, held John Paul in, in such high esteem that when sure. when this, you know, when he passed away, there was absolutely the thought of like honoring him and doing something for his family. So that that yeah. was you know, the proceeds from that campaign all went to John Paul's family, essentially paying for his daughter's college education. So, but yeah, I mean, we were the perfect out, we were the perfect platform for that project because mm -hmm. you had the people who were passionate about making it a project, but didn't have the knowledge or time to, you know, execute it properly, which is where yeah. we came in to essentially fill those gaps. So it, you know, it, it worked out incredibly well is honestly like a very, very high selling artist edition book. Uh, so sure. 
So we're very sure. proud of we're very proud of that. And and realistically, it helped put us on the map as a platform as well. I think it turned a lot sure. of heads. Yeah, I, I think yeah, because I mean, I mean the amount of emails. <laughs> And text messages that went around right, you know, right at John, John Paul's passing. Like, I mean, that's how it all happened. Like everybody was, what can we do? We were all like, yeah. we were all just emailing and, and texting each other and calling each other. Um, you know, I had a great talk with JP two weeks before he passed. Oh, like, man. And, you know, he, you know, I mean, I know I've known him since he was 19, 18. 18 yeah. or 19 like and he um you know he'd always just been a fixture in my life you know yeah. as you know the, you know who he was as a person then as an artist and so yeah i'm sure that like i mean i know scott probably was immediate like i, w- I want to do you know, i would like to do something and it may, it may have already been in the con- in a conversation um i don't know if brett was sort of pro or against it previously um but it um you know, and, and and then you know, I mean, I think, you know, Tommy Lee and you know Bernard were just they would do anything at that point. So yeah, um, yeah, and it's great. It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful book, and I mean, it's, it's six yeah. behind me right now. Yeah, like no, I have one too. I have nowhere to put it. It's still like in in its box. Like yeah, uh, I I can't get rid of the boxes. I have artists. I just can't get rid of the boxes. I don't know why I can't get rid of a stupid cardboard box. I don't know. Cause we're all children at heart. I still have the box. It, yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily have like a place to display it, but I'm incredibly proud of that project. Um, yeah. Well, you, I mean, you, sh- I mean, you should be, um, it's an amazing, listen, it's an amazing testament to his, you know, oh. Herculean efforts as a, as an artist and, and not to mention just the love of an industry for you know for an artist yeah, yeah. i mean yeah, yeah he he was i i didn't know him i never met him you know b- beforehand so my 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 touch point to him is actually this project in in a weird way um but yeah like it it, it it it's a proud it's a proud moment for us you know as a company for me as an individual um you know, we, we've had some other big projects as well. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Axe Wielder John campaign that mm-hmm. we ran, sure, um, which did incredibly well. And those books are, are, I think, either being printed or done, finally done being printed right now. Same with, uh, you know, we did this benefit uh, anthology called Comics for Ukraine. Um, right. That had yeah. a, co- you know, covered by Alex Ross and Bill Sienkiewicz and Dave Johnson and Art Adams all did covers. I mean... Some of the people that were, you know, associated with with the Winterman project and and this Comics for Ukraine project. I mean, Joe Quesada, Walt Simonson, um, mm-hmm. Kim Jung Ji. I mean, my God, yeah, yeah. It, it you know the fact that you know we we have something from him, you know, in in, in like a quote unquote Zoop book to me is like that that's yeah. tremendous. Um, you know, talk about masters, right? I mean, John oh, Paul yeah. Leon, Kim Jung Ji, Jesus. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, we, we did an art book with Dan Panosian. Um, Who? Oh. <laughs> nah. Okay. Uh, Jorge Molina was another one. Uh, you know, we 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 did th- this really interesting title was at DC. Um, it was part of an Elseworlds um, 
line, I guess would be the word. It was called the, the whistling skull. And uh, Tony Harris was the artist. Mm-hmm. B-, B Clay Moore was the writer and they got the rights back to that. So we were able to sort of like scrub out any sort of DC references or like DC <laughs> characters and re-release it in the way that they wanted to see it released, you know? Oh, rad. So that's in production right now as well. Um, we were able to wrap up. We did like a 400 plus page omnibus for Saucer Country, which was at Vertigo, then IDW. The series never finished. So they finally were able to finish the last issue and put out the omnibus as well. Oh, wow. Through, okay. through Zoop. Yeah. No, we have, we have some like exciting stuff. I mean, it's a, we, but that's such a cool, it's such a cool thing to think about because, you know, there hasn't been, because if, here's the thing. You guys are a publisher. You know, we're, we we like to say that we're a pseudo publisher. Okay, but but there's an imprint. You know what I mean? Like there's an imprint there. There's a, logo. Yeah. there's a logo. There's no Kickstarter logo on a Kickstarter book. So, sometimes, you know, I, that's on a that's on a creator by creator basis. Okay. Some some people want to put it on, so others don't, and it's not like mandated by us if they have to or not. You know, <laughs> but yeah, some people some people are kind enough to include us or put our name in the book or on yeah. the book. Yeah, which is always flattering and, and like super cool for us to see. But this I got, hasn't been this hasn't been around like we just can't like we have not been able to see this kind of stuff happen you know like you know the, the sort of the you know using the legacy of like the rocketeer you know like having having that thing just hopping around hopping around and never like find a landing you know and um did you use yeah. the rocketeer because we did a campaign with the rocketeer or i, I may have been pretty clever by saying uh, that okay yeah. because we, we are on the box <laughs> yeah. we, we did a puzzle with the rocketeer and we have our, our logo on the box which was like a big thrill Dude, when I was a kid, the Rocketeer was my literally my favorite. I loved I loved that movie. Oh my god, it got me right at the right time. Like, are are you kidding me? Like, you could fly around and like it was (laughs) was your Indiana Jones in a way. There was something there was something to it in that regard. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we we, you know we kind of say that we're a pseudo publisher, Mm -hmm. you know, because we handle a lot of the things that publishers do. You know, we don't handle editorial. But right. I think I think that that's a bonus for creators. And, and what I mean by that is you get to make the story that you want. We're, mm-hmm. we're not going to be giving you notes, you know, because you have to fulfill some sort of weird. Um, you don't have to check check something off the list for us as a publisher or for retailers or for the distributor. Like it really crowdfunding allows you to tell the exact story that you want to tell with no filters. And I think mm-hmm. that there's there's something really cool about that. Um and then we don't pay advances, right? But that's like, sort of like what the crowdfunding sure. piece is for. So we're not going to pay you a page rate. But then short of that, yeah, I mean, like we, we don't do retail distribution, although we do have, you know, a pretty robust retailer outreach program, um, much more so than Kickstarter. Like on Kickstarter, uh, you could do like one retailer tier, right? Yeah. Where it's like three copies or five copies at 50% off. Thank you. We're able to customize you know, mm-hmm. if retailers want to do exclusive variant covers, let's have that conversation. If you yeah. have a local retailer that you could set up a signing, if they buy like 50 copies, let's make that happen. You know, we have the flexibility to be able to do a lot more, you know, for, you know, again, if those retailers want like 50 copies plus 25 art prints or, you know, the like mm-hmm. 10 t-shirts, whatever it is, like, cool, let's throw it all into a bundle, say for, you know, for Alex's local comic shop, and then they go and claim that reward. And and yeah, we'll, we'll fulfill and, and make everything happen. So it's crazy cool. Yeah, we're, we're trying to bridge that gap. I mean, that there is yeah. there is sort of like still an issue between crowdfunding and retail. 
and we're 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 doing a lot behind the scenes nothing i can really discuss right now but like we're doing a lot to try to bridge that gap um I'll, I'll, I, I have a couple of things I want to talk to you after we're done recording. Sure. There, yeah. there, there's a few things that I, I'll pass on to you. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, listen, I think there's a, listen, we all know this is here and it's not going anywhere. Oh, like, it's growing. The, it's only growing. Right. To, to be able to directly connect with your, your, your customer base with the thing that you're making have them engaged in the campaign which is like hey we are on a team together let's do this thing i think there's a whole lot of incredible upsides to this whole thing and and it's only going to get better you know with with the with the technology and the sort of going back to our discussion about innovation like as long as a a you know I don't. I don't want this to be a Kickstarter bashing, you know. Thing. No, not at all. Not at all. Because like I just have so many. I have a, like so a very very close friend of mine is the creative director for um, Dwarven Forge, which makes gaming terrain for D anD D. Oh, cool. Primarily, and they do multi million dollar Kickstarters, and Kickstarter doesn't help them at all. It doesn't do anything for them. They're like, hey, could we? You know, do you think? We, and they just nothing just they ice them and like they make million millions of dollars well here's the thing interest (laughs) yeah because kickstarter only makes five percent of that right so what's five percent of a million 50 grand i mean that's still not chump change especially over the course of like multiple campaigns you know that adds up to hundreds of thousands of dollars of income for kickstarter but yeah i mean that's that's the difference we're invested in our projects we want all of them to succeed and we're we're you know to have them come our way, man. <laughs> I mean, no, totally. We're we're happy. We're happy to work a little extra harder for a million dollar project. <laughs> I'll yeah, say that. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, because you you wonder, like, you know, using the outliers as as examples, because you wonder what the difference is, like, you know, because that publishes through Substack, you know, and because you know it, it's an easy platform to use. Say it again. Who who publishes through Substack? Substack. Oh, no, no. Substack. I, I'm sorry. Who 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 publishes through Substack? You said. I, I do. I publish the, oh. the podcast through Substack, and then it goes out to all the you know all the different you know outlets of podcasting. And yeah, but you know they're in it to make money. Like I sure. get that. But then there's all this question about like what's the legitimacy of whoever they're pushing up to the top of the the food chain because are they giving people better breaks and trying to get them so cuz they're already making money let's see if they can get make them more money and i get that on the business end um it's it, so you wonder looking at the outliers then you look at like brandon sanderson at you know his book at kickstarter like what conversation happened what conversation happened afterwards because if he says hey i have got another i want to do another campaign with you do they get on the phone Yes. I mean, yeah, there's a certain level. There's a certain level. I'm I'm honestly kind of surprised that like, you know, campaigns that are doing a million dollars, they're still not giving the time of day to, I would assume that that I would assume that that's an oversight. Um, I kind of can't imagine how, you know, a a company that's um, a company that's done multiple million dollar plus campaigns can't get someone on the phone. Um, right. yeah. that, that's pretty nuts to me. So, um, I think, I, I think it more of a, you know, fishing with a big giant net versus, 
you know, fly fishing. That's kind of their approach is very much like we're just going to put the big net there and just keep dragging it across the ocean. And, you know, and we'll we'll pick up what we get. Um, I don't think it's very tactical. I, I know for a fact that there are certain people that have a direct line to Kickstarter. Mm hmm people that are making way less than a million dollars. So I'm, I'm honestly, like I said, I'm honestly surprised that they haven't been able to, there hasn't, there's just not a lot of like, we, you know, that's a great idea. Let's, let's address this. Like they just kind of, they're kind of like, there's a lot of just kind of like glad handing. Oh yeah. Well, look, which I completely understand. We get input from people all the time too. And it's like, I would love to implement that, but that's like 68,000th on this list of other things that we need to implement. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to bat for anybody, but like, I, like, I understand it's, it's not as, it's not as simple as it seems from the outside, you know, yeah. like, oh my, there's so much that goes on in running a business that if any of the people who were internet trolls shitting on literally everything that people do, like if they saw how things ran, then maybe they actually so. wouldn't, they wouldn't like, you know, say all the things that they say, because like, look, we, we've, we've stumbled, we've made, you know, errors and mistakes. And it's like, yeah, because we're human and we're not yeah. perfect. But the second you make that mistake, you get pounced you on. Sure, and, you and, you're like, on. and you're like, yeah. whoa, dude, yeah. you're already throwing me off a ledge before you even told me why you're mad at me. It's like, yeah, yeah. Like that actually happened. You know, I, I'm not going to get into like what happened, but it was just like the, the outrage before I even knew what was wrong was like, this is insane. And now I know yeah. why people don't, you know, like read the comments or why people like just go off the internet because there's nothing productive here. You're just like vomiting, you know, you're just yelling as loud as you can. And sometimes when that happens, I can't hear a word you're saying. Right. So I I was talking to one of my my dearest and closest friends and we're talking and he's, he's from Long Island and he's Italian and very quite, quite you know <clears throat> vociferous when he speaks <laughs> and i remember we were just in the middle of some sort of dis- discussion i just looked at him i was like you know that louder doesn't make it right and he just looked at me just like couldn't like he was processing the whole like trying to try to process that whole one yeah. um yeah well i mean i i get it i i i re- this, god this is what in the in the mid to late 90s mid 90s i remember like getting in sort of like flame wars on like chat boards sure in in a closed network of role players like we play we played a game and people would get angry and i would and i I, as a person who was making comics at the time i'm like you know listen make something stop complaining about it and just make something. And I, and I realized early that like, Oh, the anger comes from a sense of lack of agency. Like if you don't feel you can do something, it's easier to be angry than it is to put in the hard work and time. It is to potentially fail. Yeah. Uh, There's definitely something to that. You know, the people who are loudest are the people who have never actually gone through any hardship. Yeah. Or like understand what it is to actually build something and create something that's positive. Like, that's the thing. The amount of positive impact that we've had on the comics community. Yeah. And then you, again, make one human error and all of that goodwill is lost instantly, which is blows my mind. It, it, it's, 
we're in such a like i mean this is every conversation nowadays but the polarization you know it you know loud louder doesn't make you right i like that i definitely like that i wonder you know and i wonder if there's i i don't know i i I wonder if people don't make the the correlation between the people like let's say you yourself, you know, or anybody of a, of a, of a company yeah. and then the company itself is the comp like maybe the company is a non-human perfection machine that does a thing, but the human messes it up. So they have to be angry at something. I, I don't know. Like, I just don't, it's strange. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a case by case basis, you know, I mean, but people are, we're, we're messy, blobby, terrible stinky things it, it is just weird that like perfection is sort of uh, expected or demanded from the mass audience right. but like if you were to look at like any of these people who are like giving you the hardest times i'm sure it's all just projection <laughs> yeah 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 uh, and i you know and i think and i and i i want i always want to think the best and feel the best for people like i'm just thinking like okay like something is not making you happy it's not specifically this this is just what you have to react to, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with not being happy, yeah. but to yeah. sort of like put people on blast and like mm-hmm. instantly without knowing anything. Sure. You know, make up your mind about something and, and start telling other people how to feel about it, as opposed to just like reaching out and being like, hey, man, um, I think you might have messed this thing up. Like, um, take a look at it and let me know if I could help. Like nobody, nobody's right. ever, nobody's ever like taking the tact of like, right. Just, just like bringing it up casually or in a yeah. like respectful kind of way. Everyone just instantly goes to DEFCON five, like <laughs> immediately. And then, yeah. and then, yeah, there, there's nothing helpful about that. I, but, I, I, I texted, I texted a showrunner yesterday because they had put up two posts for another creator and call them an amazing artist, but they're writers. And I'm like, I'm like, you may just want to get whoever's handling your social media to just make that change, you know? Yeah. You know, while if I was a fan, I might have been angry. I don't know. Like I it, Yeah, yeah. It's, totally. Yeah. How, how are you doing this and misclassifying them? That's not who they are. Rubble, 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 rubble. You. Yeah. Rubble, 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 rubble. <laughs> yeah. So you guys just well, you I guess not just wrap, but you wrapped up a big project with uh Jason's um 300 page epic oh yeah yeah full yeah yeah. full tilt was a fantastic campaign i mean millions of trees are gonna die because of him (laughs) yeah i mean fortunately unfortunately i guess but look i mean the cool thing about that particular project is is sort of like what we what we touched on before is that he didn't have to make any concessions he got to tell the exact story that he wanted to make and I think what started as sort of like a 120 page graphic novel turned into this 300 page plus epic of his vision. He got to yep. do it exactly what he wanted and take the time to do it. You're not beholden to anyone's schedules. You don't have any committees to answer to. And as a result, he's going to have a book that he is so incredibly proud of. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, and look, the community turned out for him. I mean, he he was able to, you know, really promote this thing for a long time before it launched, which has always he beneficial. Had everybody on the hook for he years. really did. Yeah, yeah, and you should have seen like some of the like you know we have access to to the back end. We get to see everybody who's who's backing it, and like seeing the list of like names that we recognize, you know, from like from comic professionals. It was like, all right, go Jason. That was that was. Super cool, man. You know, oh, the, yeah. like the community really turned out for him, which was which no, was lovely did. to see. 
totally stepped up. They totally stepped up. And I, you know, and I'm, I'm super excited. And listen, I can't wait for my copy because I'm just excited to see what he, uh, and he, he kept emailing me stuff like, Hey, check this out, check that. I'm like, well, this is cool. You know, and, uh, I'm looking forward to putting it all together in one, in one narrative. Me too, man. It's gonna be heavy. It is going to be heavy. Yeah. We have, look, we, we kind of, I don't want to say we specialize, but like one of the reasons, you know, like a, a good thing about crowdfunding is it helps you go into production on some of these like really high ticket items, you yeah. know, some, something like self-publishing a 300 page book is going to be really costly and expensive. It's different mm-hmm. than just like, you know, some single issue comics. So, you know, the crowdfunding really helps de-risk that financial proposition. Yeah. So, you know, between something like that, like I said, uh, Saucer Country is a 400 plus page book. We did an 800 page uh, hardcover with a guy named Glenn Bray. Um, yeah, I mean, we have some really big, big stuff. I'm, I'm trying to look at, at some of the other ones. For you. I'm, I'm worried about your safety, Jordan. That's it. It's, it, it's a sturdy shelf that I put up myself. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Cue the sound. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's and I I think it's great, and I think you know you mentioned something earlier about the you know the you know the sort of the the offloading of these tasks, you know, like you know I I have a twenty five year you know career in graphic design, so I'm cool on the production and printing side and speaking that language, but if you don't have that, boy, it's going to be it's a challenge because you need to have someone who can talk to the printers who can, yeah because again it's it's that if you don't know what you don't know yeah then you're not gonna be able to get what you want so yes having us there on your behalf sort of acting like a publisher or i should say sort of acting like the publisher at a publishing company right like the the publisher's role is you know dealing with printers and and everything like that having that is certainly helpful especially for for these larger projects where again you know like you can go to Mixum or Comics Wellspring for like your your single issue comics and they have templates and they make it as easy as possible. But when you get into sort of like, all right, hardcovers and end papers and, and you know, maybe tip in sheets or signature sheets and type of binding and, and you know, weight of paper and, and like there's, there's just like a lot of different variations that you need to know a little bit more than your average bear in order to get like, you know, the proper product. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, the, you know, binding, you know, the lay flat binding was the big sort of thing with Jason. He's like, yep. he wanted a lay flat binding and he got it, but it probably took a fair amount of effort because you're not just going to a printer and saying, okay, here's what we want. Cause not yeah. everybody can do everything. That's true. We actually, for that particular project, I think we started, um, with one printer getting quotes. And then when the lay flat binding came in, they were like, yeah, that's not something we can do. So we actually had to go to a different vendor, but because yeah. of the way that we're set up, that's not a problem. Like we, we use multiple vendors all the time. So mm-hmm. it was an easy enough, you know, switch and adjustment. We got our new quotes, everything was good. So I believe we're in production on that one right now too. I mean, like there's a lot going on, like, no, there's a ton. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you guys, I mean, it's really busy and it's, it's very cool. Um, What's hap- What's the future look like? What's what's the Zoop future? I mean, so things have been going like really well so far. I think so. When does when's this going to drop? This will drop next week. So what is the date to? What is All right, it? let me oh, see. Yeah, let me see something real <laughs> here, quick. Here we are. We're all looking at calendars. This I know. Well, riveting. This this will come out on the nineteenth. 
on the 19th. All right. So let me see real quick because October is going to be an insane, insane month for us. Um, let me see here. Actually, starting in, in the end of September. So by the time people start hearing this, um, we have our second project out right now by Paul Aller. Um, if you don't know Paul, he's written a bunch of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and G.I. Joe. Uh, he's currently writing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles versus Street Fighter comic for IDW. Uh, his his second campaign with us is out right now. We're going to have our second campaign from Cam Kirk Hugh, um, who was at Source Point Press for a little while. His second campaign mm-hmm. with us is coming out later this month. Also, we, we, we've pulled someone else over from Kickstarter. Um who had written a couple of novels over on Kickstarter. And now he's doing okay. his first graphic uh, graphic depiction of that novel. His name is Jason Michael Primrose uh, campaign called the arrival. Um, we have our second campaign from uh, scratch comics. This is a Dracula book from a direct descendant of uh, Bram Stoker. His name is Doc Ray Stoker. Um, and they, they did a campaign over on Kickstarter. It didn't reach its goal. We brought it over to Zoop and we exceeded the goal. So now they're back for a second campaign this, with us. Is this Lanier? Lanier? What's his name? From Scratch Comics. Oh, uh, Shane Chesby? No. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, we, we have uh, another one coming up from Don Hanfield, who's, I think he's a showrunner as well. And he had released some stuff with scout comics. His artist on this is Kaylin Smith, uh, who was the creator of plume done a bunch of web comics and really successful kickstarters as well. Um, coming up in October, we have Witchtober. Uh, it's a book called coven, um, okay. from Richard pace. I don't know if you, if you, if you don't follow Richard pace on Instagram, he's a great follow. He does these, these, uh, witchy Wednesday. He's got this, this witch character that he draws, like just kind of like nude, witches in like different you know environments and stuff and they're just gorgeous i mean like really tasteful well done you know um like sexy witches so we're putting out a book with Mm -hmm. him that's going to launch in october we have a project from david boer and drew zucker the team behind canto um that's coming out also in october that's going to be a horror book from them a really big one for us uh you you mentioned his name at the the beginning of the podcast uh a graphic novel from howard chaikin uh, uh-huh. so he, he's writing and drawing an adaptation of, uh, this character called Fargo and not, not, uh, Florence, what wasn't it? Florence McDorman. Yeah. For, yeah. Uh, Francis, Francis, Francis McDorman. Yeah. So not the movie, but, uh, in the fifties and sixties, there was this pulp character named Fargo, uh, these pulp paperbacks, sort of like a Western. He's, he's like a Lee Marvin meets, um, Conan, the barbarian type character in, in the wild West. So lots of violence, lots of women, lots of like booze and it, it it's straight, you know, Howard Chaykin. So it's going to be amazing. Uh, there's, there's the opportunity to get drawn into the book, to get drawn in by Howard Chaykin and get killed in the book if you want. So some really by cool Chaykin. by Howard Chaykin, get killed by Howard Chaykin. Um, we have an anthology that's coming out. We have, we have some other, Oh man, we have some things that are on on the horizon um oh you know here here's another interesting one i don't know if you remember a couple it was like a month or so ago and sorry if i'm going quickly because i just but um idw had announced um that they had some projects on their slate that they were canceling and that those creators were getting their rights back so as soon as that happened we got one of those books from a creator named will robson uh, who had done oh, some cool. stuff for marvel he, his book was gonna come out through idw but the thing that he liked about coming to us was 
because he had just gotten his rights back, he didn't want to have to give up any any rights to anybody else. You know, th- this allowed him again to tell the story he wanted to tell without sort of like, you know, editorial notes um, and we're able to move fast. You know, that's that's the thing. If you were to take that project to another publisher, it might not get on the slate for release for like another sure. nine to 12 months. You know, this way we're on his schedule now. So that's mm-hmm. just, you know, another added benefit of crowdfunding. Um, so we have that coming up. We have a couple of things that we haven't announced just yet that I could, I, I could tell you about off air, but I, okay. because, because we haven't, we haven't announced them just yet. Um, I, I would be hesitant to, to say their name before, before we actually go live, but the, you're going to be like, damn dude, like that things are going to crush. Um, nice. The interesting thing is, you know, because we have sort of this, this niche of comics and graphic novels, we could sort of expand outwards from there. So we have a campaign that's going to be coming, I think, in November uh, with a cosplayer. Uh, she's going to put okay. out a, a photo book, you know, a hardcover photo book of like her her and all her different costumes, which I think will play very well to our audience. Um, and we have a, a Spider-Man fan film that we're probably early next year that we're going to be doing the the crowdfunding for it as well. So it's not just going to be the, the film, but I think there might be sort of like a newspaper or a comic, some other sort of like physical objects that you could own. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you ask about like the future of, you know, like what we're doing, it is about sort of servicing the entire, what I'll say is quote unquote, the comic con audience. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. so people who are into other types of collectibles, not just comics and graphic novels, um, but toys, plushies, action figures, statues, video games, board games. I know that, you know, board games is like the number one category over on Kickstarter. So we're not yeah, yeah. we're not going to try to compete too hard over there because there is already. But we're certainly open to run those campaigns, especially, right. you know, Dwarven Forge. Come on, man. Um, but <laughs> I, I could put you in touch. <laughs> yeah. But but all of those things, because I think our audience, like, you know, like we said about that Venn diagram, it all overlaps, yeah. you know, that yeah. like. We all like all that same stuff. We're not really necessarily looking to do like, you know, high tech potato peelers or anything like that because that doesn't really speak to our audience. But yeah, on uh, you know, anime, manga, video mm-hmm. games, esports, like whatever. Like this is all sort of our world. So that's that's part of what we see as the future. And then there's some other things I could tell you about. Uh, you know, when we're not yeah. recording too. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna talk to Van and get and get our uh, Van Jensen. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. background background in uh, in in uh, journalism. I think we're going to have to write and uh, lay out the first issue of the Daily Bugle that Spider Man appeared in, and then we could print that up. Whoa! So like a 1963 kind of Daily Bugle. So it would be the Daily Bugle issue with like a picture of Spider-Man on the cover and J. Jonah Jameson just railing on it. And then all the other news that goes into fit there. Wow. Like the world of of that. That would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. I wonder if Marvel would have like a cease and desist, though. I don't know. I'm, I listen. I, I have a I have a strong theory about the future of comic books and the big publishers. And the the thing is, is I say within maybe ten years, we're going to have basically a licensing deal option for all these companies. That's very interesting. Yeah, you know, a lot of times because of what you know what it is that we do with Zoop, you know, people will constantly like talk to me about like the the changing market. Mm-hmm. 
And that, that's that one is very interesting, by the way. Think about it. Like if they if if they don't have to then carry as much of an editorial board, maybe they keep maybe they keep X amount of things on a monthly basis. But like having Alex Ross's graphic novel come out and not come out through Marvel is a pretty strong indicator that there could be other things happening. Wait, what do you mean? Like that Fantastic Four hardcover? Mm-hmm. Would that come, come out through Abrams or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder like what his rate is, right? I mean, <laughs> like is Marvel just like, we can't pay you anymore to do a full graphic oh, novel? Gosh. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's it, that. it's an interesting thing. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you could, you know, eventually the deal will be like, listen, I, I got an idea for a Thor story. Great. You know, they'll attach somebody as long as you stick with the uh, the the you know the licensing deal you're good to go it's interesting i mean like yeah. to be to be fair we are seeing some licensing deals right now um i know clover press has already yeah. run a, you know a kickstarter campaign for the art of david mack and i want to say it was alex saviak uh so they ran that campaign i know that essential sequential has a license for licensed art prints right now um yep. you know m- licensed marvel art prints so yeah, it maybe maybe it might be closer than ten years at this point if they are. Yeah, listen, I mean that was all. Listen, all the if you if you can look at the breakdown of like you know it used to be from Marvel, man, most of their money came in from licensing because it was <laughs> under ruse and all this stuff that they were making their money from, and it wasn't selling the paper of of comic book. It was advertising and licensing. Oh, it's still. I mean, yeah, the publishing yeah. is is you know probably like the lowest line item on their balance sheet it's just right an IP you know generator man you're just generating yeah. ip yeah but at this point are they even right yeah. like what, what what's the newest they I- are but they it doesn't matter what's the what's the newest ip that has had any impact miles morales and that's how old yeah you know yeah, yeah right 20 20 so, ish years old yeah already is it, is it 20 is it is it like the early 2000s right okay i, I think i'm not i'm not really sure but that very well could be i mean yeah so that's a weird i, I I always kind of like tilt my head at that argument of like, are there an IP farm? Are they? Because like, they're not really generating new IP. The problem with that is creators see, oh, if I generate new IP, I'm not going to get compensated. I might as well mm-hmm. take my IP to, you know, and own it sure. outright as opposed to, you know, creating it for Marvel. So yeah, that's, you know, it, it's a catch 22 in that regard. Yeah. It's, it's, a, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interest. I mean, and another case for crowdfunding. Hey, yeah, 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 totally. And like, listen, if we knew what the future was, we'd all be super rich. But exactly, know, I mean, yeah. It's just you have to look at the trends of what's happening. Like, you know, my other big, my you know, my other big theory is that we will all have free, um, free Wi-Fi service. Oh, I I doubt that, man, dude. Like, I have you know Spectrum, for example, right? And I pay a hundred bucks a month just for my internet. You're telling me that, but do you think that do you think that Amazon, Apple, Google don't have a larger stake in the in the farm to try to get your business in time? Like they want you to be on and doing the thing. So I don't know, man. Like the the barrier, if the barrier is Spectrum, buy Spectrum, get rid of them, (laughs) and just give it out for free. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, like I'm I'm not the math guy. You'd have to crunch those numbers and and see if giving trillions of dollars of hey man, i'm just an idea services guy, Jordan. <laughs> just an idea guy. Way, way to bring it back around alex that is a true host right there um 
this is great, man. I really, I really had a great time talking about this and uh, going completely around the reservation. So it was good. I feel like we got enough in the tank for another episode, another time down the road. So, I think so um, are you going to New York Comic Con? Yeah, you know it's funny. We it was up in the air, and then sort of the the decision to like pull the trigger and and get out there it was made yesterday. So yes, I will be Very at cool. New, will be at New York Comic Con yourself. It's still sort of in the air. I I have a I have a bunch of projects, and I don't know what's happening with these client projects. So. I may end up having to be up in the area. So then I might be there as a, you know, journalist. That's kind of what happened is like, we we were waiting to see about, you know, potential meetings and clients and, and things yeah. like that. The crazy thing is, I mean, we have a number of different projects that are going to be live or launching at New York Comic Con and those creators are going to be there. So, mm. you know, Artist Alley and panels and stuff like that, we're going to have a pretty large Zoop contingent. So with, yeah, man, I mean, yeah, and hopefully only onwards and upwards from here. I mean, I feel like we're we're very much a part of the conversation at this point. You know, like whenever you see yeah. people talk about crowdfunding now, it's it's Kickstarter, Zoop, Indiegogo, and I say it in that order. Like, yeah, you know, right, right, right. you know that we're, we're definitely people talk about us it, it in that same breath, which is to me very validating. Listen, if you can keep delivering a consistently good product to the market. And since you control the quality of it, that's your, that's your huge, that's a huge market advantage because <laughs> someone could, you could get a yeah. Kickstarter book and it looks like crap and that's it. So yeah. Um, or, or just not deliver. And then people or, are like, I'm never sure. doing this again. Look, sure. you know, we definitely have our, our own issues. You know, we've had delays, we've had quality issues and you know, we just try to do the best that we can and learn yeah. from those experiences and, and make it better next time. We could cut cut this off at any time. I don't even know if you want to keep recording right, well, or not. Let's, let's just do the wrap right. up. <laughs> super glad that you came on. And um, I will see you in the super near future, maybe, hopefully. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me.